Y'all sing with me all you want or listen or whatever. I've been held by the sea. I fell far from above. I've been down to the That was Ed and Scott Cash singing All My Hope, written by Ed and David Crowder. It was incredible to have them there and their band Bring the Kingdom to lead us in worship over the weekend. And I wish I could just play the entirety of their concert for this episode. But we also have the honor of listening one more time to John Vickery encourage and challenge our leaders in the Carolina region. I hope you enjoy. It has been such a gift to Carol and I, uh, Carol and me, uh, to be with you this weekend. It seems a little bit backwards that a lot of you have come and said thank you for being here uh, because we're leaving having received so much more than we've given. So I want to say thank you for your ministry to us this weekend. You may say, I didn't really think I had a ministry to you. Uh, You have no idea. You have no idea what it means for those of us who've been around a while, who've prayed for God to raise up people that will continue this after we leave, and to walk into a room and to see all of you, and to know that Young Life is in good hands in the Carolinas. I have great confidence in Young Life in the Carolinas because of you, and so thank you for your ministry of encouragement to me and to Carol. Uh, It's been a priceless gift to us. Also, you've heard me refer... um, many times this weekend to parents, and maybe you're thinking, I can't really relate, I'm not a parent. But the older I get as a parent, the more grateful I am for the people that have impacted the lives of my children. And almost all of them that I can name and think first of are young life leaders. There's Paul and Jenny and Tim and Thomas and Donald and Eve, and I could go on. And there are men and women just like you. Some were in college, some were older married couples. But they poured into our boys They told our boys they were loved by Jesus when they weren't listening to us. And we are forever grateful. And we realized uh, early that Young Life was influencing our children. Our oldest son uh, was about four years old. I'd taken him to a lot of Young Life things. There's nothing better than having a baby with you when you do contact work. Maybe a puppy is close, but a baby's even better. And so I would walk up to the high school and have JC with me, who's just a baby. And so kids knew him and he seemed very comfortable in Young Life settings and at Young Life Club I remember the first time he was up at club with me and unlike the Cash family I have no musical abilities I could play guitar could could lead songs but that was a stretch so JC would come up with me have his little plastic guitar stand by me and he would just strum like nobody's business now he didn't know he has no musical ability either but in the moment he thought man I'm leading this whole group in music we again realized the impact Young Life had one uh, morning. We were in our home in Oklahoma City, and J.C. was maybe four years old. Heard this commotion in his room, and we peeked around the corner. He didn't see us, but we watched him, and he had all of his stuffed animals set out in front of him, some sitting down on the floor, some in chairs, and he came out with his guitar, and he just started strumming and singing, and, and then he went put his guitar down and put on some kind of wig and came out and did some funny, goofy things, and then he went back and got his guitar and played some softer songs. 
Then he put his guitar down, down and he began to speak. It was just gibberish. Every once in a while you hear, Jesus, Jesus. And then he stopped and he prayed. I don't know if stuffed animals can meet Jesus, but if so, there are some stuffed animals that came to Christ that day. We're still praying for a stuffed bunny rabbit. He's kind of a wild hare. Sorry. That was, that, was a da- that was a dad joke. Had to throw one in. But we're forever grateful for the impact you and people like you have had upon our children. You know, as precious as, and tender as those moments are uh, with your children, you still live with the fear of what will happen as they get older. The ultimate fear is that your child would pass away, would die before you do. We've had friends of ours who's lost children. Friday morning we were at the Gibbs Memorial and I watched Joe Gibbs stand up and say a prayer at his son's funeral. And I thought, Lord, I don't ever want to say that prayer. But apart from that, there's also this fear of what's going to happen as they get older. As they become more distant, what if we lose our child as they grow up? You know, every day in the U.S. there are 2,400 missing person reports filed, 2,400 a day. The great majority of those, almost 80 to 90 percent, are teenagers. Moms and dads or someone close to them files a report saying, I've lost my teenager. Can you imagine what that would be like? It happened to my mom and dad. They lost my little brother one time. It was Sunday morning. They went to church. They came home and realized my little brother, Mike, was gone. Now, it makes more sense when you understand they drove separate cars. So they get home from church, and my mom looks at my dad and says, Mike with you? He he says, no, I thought he was with you. Then this panic hits them. Where is he? We've lost our son. Before they could race out the door, someone knocking on the door. It's our pastor with my little brother saying, I thought maybe you wanted this one back. 2,400 missing person reports every day. Had it happened today, Mary and Joseph would have filed a missing person report because they lost Jesus. Luke chapter 2, we'll look at the passage together. It's the only account we have of Jesus between being a baby and being an adult. It's when he was 12 years old and Mary and Joseph lost him. I want to look at this passage together walk through it and tell you how we're going to look at it together, but listen to what Luke tells us. Every year, as was their custom, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to their custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his questions. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
And they went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with men. What I'd like to do, I think I have a PowerPoint we can get started. There we go. Uh, I'm going to go back one. There we go. Uh, I want to look at this passage together to answer the question, how do you know when Jesus is missing? A disclaimer from the start, it's theologically impossible for Jesus to be missing. Don't miss what I'm saying here. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. In John 10, the good shepherd, he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. No one can snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. And my father, who's even greater than I, no one can snatch them out of his hand. When, when you give your life and heart to Jesus, he holds on to you and will not let go. Even if you let go of him, he never lets go of you. He'll never, ever leave you. But there are times experientially when it feels like Jesus is missing, when suddenly the gap becomes greater. He seems absent. So how do you know when Jesus is missing? So let's look at this passage together. It begins, it says, every year as was their custom. How long does it take for something to become a custom? I want to say for something to become routine. How many times do you have to do something before it comes a ritual or a routine? I read one time it takes 17 days for something to become a habit. Habits are good. Discipline is good. But sometimes it feels like maybe I'm the only one here. But sometimes it feels like I get in a rut with Jesus. I've done the same thing over and over and over, and it's become ritual and routine, and it's lost its passion and lost its heart. Can you imagine a relationship that you have with a boyfriend or girlfriend, husband, wife? You say, I'm so committed to this relationship, I want to spend time with you every day. You can imagine their face lighting up. You go, okay, let's, we're going to meet every day. I've got 15 minutes every morning. We'll meet right here, same place, same time. And you meet every morning, and then it's not quite every morning. It, it leads a little bit less than that. And, but you meet every, every time you can, and you say the same thing every time. Good morning, I love you, I'm just so glad to be your husband. Have a good day. Next day, good morning, I love you, I'm just so glad to be your husband, have a good day. And that goes on, and after a while, you kind of stop saying you love them, and it turns into, I love you, but I've got some things I need you to do for me. And then it turns into just a list of things you need them to do for you. Can you imagine over time how stale that relationship would become? If Jesus is always with us, why do we limit our time with him to 15 minutes a morning? You know, the best thing about being married to Carol, it's not the wedding. The wedding was great. It's not the honeymoon. Honeymoon was great. Some of you have your wedding planned out already. You've been planning it for years. I hope it lives up to all your expectations. Some of you have your honeymoon planned out. You've been thinking about it for years. hope it lives up to all your expectations. But marriage is better than the honeymoon. We have this horrible phrase, the honeymoon's over. The best thing about being married to Carol is I get to wake up every morning for the rest of my life and experience whatever the day brings with her. Two weeks ago, we sat on a beach in Florida and just sat there together. Friday or Thursday, we spent seven hours driving in a car. That seemed boring. It wasn't because I was with her. 
There are boring days and great days and awful days and unbelievable days, and our relationship is better because we get to experience all of it. Are you in a rut with Jesus? Are you doing the same thing over and over? Has it lost its passion? When's the last time you did something different with Jesus? When's the last time you went on a walk with him? When's the last time you played with him? When's the last time you laughed with him? When's the last time you sat in quiet and silence with him? When's the last time you yelled at him? When's the last time you cried with him? Dare to do something different with Jesus because the threat to spiritual passion is routine. The Jews had routine down to a science, and yet they were missing what God wanted in their hearts. Jesus is absent from them, but it says uh, they were unaware of it. How could that be? How could a mom and dad be unaware that their son is missing? Is it possible they were just kind of focused on the journey? Is it possible they were just oblivious to everything else except where they were going next? Is it possible that they were so focused on the trip that they forgot about who was with them? Can you imagine doing that? I do it all the time. I'm so preoccupied with the present, I miss the eternal. I'm about where I'm going. I'm about the next task. And along the way, I'm like Peter on the water. My eyes get taken off Jesus. I look at the wind and the waves. They were unaware he was missing from them. And maybe this is part of the reason why. It says, thinking he was in their company. It'll make more sense when you understand how they traveled in those days. They traveled in large extended families. Large groups of people would travel. They'd make this trek every year to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So it would make sense that you would think, okay, Jesus isn't with us, but he's probably with our relatives. He's with my brother or sister or nephews and nieces. He's with his cousins. That would make more sense. Is it possible to settle for Jesus being present in those around us but not intimate with us? You're in a crowd of people that love Jesus. This weekend has been an incredible time to come together and worship Jesus. And maybe it's enough for you to just be part of the crowd. Maybe it's enough for you to know people who know Jesus. You've heard all of the danger about secondhand smoke. What's more dangerous is secondhand faith. To just live off the faith of someone else. Your parents believe in Jesus. You're just going to ride their coattails. Our Young Life team believes in Jesus. Our Young Life is serious about Jesus. And you're just, you're just comfortable being on the edge of the crowd, close to but not close with. It's why Thomas said, unless I see for myself. It's not enough that my friends saw Jesus. Jesus, come, I want to see for myself. The bleeding woman in the crowd, do you remember that story? She wasn't... It wasn't enough for her just to be close to Jesus. She had to reach out and touch him. She wanted him to know she needed something from him. She wanted an intimate encounter with Jesus, and he met her there. Marriages without intimacy are the most miserable relationships on the planet. It's not what God intended. I've done lots of marriages over the years. I had the privilege with a lot, a lot of old young life kids who grew up and get married want me to do their wedding, and I'm always so honored did a wedding a year and a half ago, and it was a spectacular wedding. Literally, the bride rode in on a white horse. I mean, just imagine that scene. I don't know how much they spent in this wedding, but they spent a lot. 
and she looked unbelievable, and he looked unbelievable, and the wedding was great, and the reception was great, and two months later, he decided, I don't think I love you anymore. I don't think I want to be married. She found out because friends sent her pictures that he had posted online with him with other women at clubs in town. Nothing is more miserable than a marriage when there's not intimacy. They finalized their divorce a few months ago. It's not what God intended. It's the reason marriage is used as the picture for our relationship with Jesus. You've been to a wedding recently. We went to one a few weeks ago. The focal point of the wedding is the bride. Sorry, guys, not your day. It's the bride. And if you see a bride on her wedding day, it's that moment in the wedding everybody waits for. It's when the music starts, you all stand up, you look back, the doors open, and there's the bride walking down the aisle. It's a breathtaking moment. We had our own moment like that. Still gets me. It's my daughter-in-law, Banner. She's a beautiful bride. And she, the doors open, and she walked down the aisle. I had the privilege to be the best man. I had a front row seat. I watched her walk down the aisle. And she was glowing. And not because of great makeup, although, Banner, you had great makeup that day. Not because of a great hairdo. Your hair looked great. Beautiful dress. No, I think the reason Banner's glowing and radiant this day, like every bride on their wedding day, is because in that moment, they have never felt more loved. They can't help themselves. Their face is exploding because they've never felt more loved. And in that moment when the bride is walking down the aisle, it's the only time anyone ever looks at the groom. Seriously, that's it. Take a quick glance to see what does he look like, like the security guard people, looking at him, looking at her. (laughs) This is Michael looking at his bride. That's a happy boy right there. There's a reason you're called the bride of Christ. Did you realize you're called the bride of Christ? I realized in a new way several years ago, I was reading through John 17. It's the priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the last words of Jesus before the cross. We have this recorded prayer of Jesus. Here's what was on his heart before he went to the cross. In the first part of this section, sorry, the first part of the section, it says this phrase, it says, the ones you gave me. It says it over and over again, Father, the ones you gave I've not lost any of the ones you gave me. I thought to myself, when does someone give someone else to a person? It's a wedding. I've done a lot of weddings, like I said, and there's that moment when The dad's with the bride, and you say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? The dad's got one job. It's an easy job. Just say, her mother and I. How hard is that? But I've watched dads not be able to get the words out. Like They're they're just gone. Because in that moment, they realize, I'm giving this precious, priceless treasure to this person. Do you realize you're a gift from the father to Jesus? You're the priceless treasure that the Father is given to Jesus. You're the bride of Christ. Can you imagine? 
as a bride walks down the aisle, if someone in the crowd says, hey, you're ugly, take off the makeup, take off the hairdo, I know what you look like, you're ugly, I know everything you've done, I know all the lovers you've had, I know all the thoughts you've had, I know the horrible things in your past, and they start listing up all the things the bride has done that are awful, horrible things. Can you imagine what the groom would do? What the dad of the bride, it'd be ugly. You're the bride of Christ. Why do you listen to the voices that say you're ugly? You're not worthy to be his bride? Why do you listen to the tapes that play over and over things you've done in your past that make you unworthy to be the bride of Christ? If you could see him, if you could see him, if you could see Jesus as he looks at you, his bride, you would be undone. You're the bride of Christ. But when they tried to see Jesus, they could not because he wasn't there. And then they began looking for him. Don't you wonder? What happened? What changed along the way? Maybe there was a need they had. Maybe a wheel broke on the, on the wagon. Maybe there was some, uh, maybe they hurt themselves. Maybe the luggage got too heavy. When they turned around and said, hey, uh, Jesus, we need help here. Where'd you go? You ever get that way in your life? You just coast along and something hits you and you go, Jesus, I need help here, but I don't know where you are. You seem distant. Or maybe someone asked them, hey, hey, where's Jesus? And when he's right, he's, I thought he was with you. Who asked you where Jesus is in your life? Not who asked you about college or life or work or your favorite football team. Who says, hey, how are you and Jesus? Who's asking you that question? Do you have any secret friends? I don't mean friends that you don't tell anybody about, (laughs) but friends who know your secrets. They know where you're most likely to get off track. Who are those people asking you, how are you doing with Jesus? They began looking for him. How long would it take for you to know that Jesus is missing? Another way to ask it is, what in your life is absolutely dependent on the presence and power of Christ? So that if he were gone, you'd know it like that. I wondered, how do you know when you're spiritually empty? What are some symptoms of spiritual emptiness? I thought of a few. There's probably a longer list. For me, this is how I know. When my prayers become become consumed with I and me. You listen to me pray, and I pray mostly about I and me. It's a sign something's running out. When worship becomes duty and task and obligation. I go to church because I'm supposed to be at church. When I'm insensitive to God at work and other people. When I hear people say, I just saw Jesus, here's what God's done in my life, and my first response is cynicism or criticism or judgment. When I become numb to sin in my own life, things that used to bother me quickly, now don't bother me quite as much or quite as quickly. When the fruit of the Spirit isn't present in my life, you know this. Apple trees don't 
just stand there straining to make apples. They just make apples because that's what comes from within them. Fruit of the Spirit is what comes from within us. What's coming out from within you? You know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. It's the fruit of Jesus in us. But what if instead of love, there's hate and anger? We're in a culture when the most popular emotion is anger and hatred. We have all kind of venues to express our anger and our hatred. Would you please, I beg you, would you please be careful about being sucked into that culture? Don't let freedom of speech cancel out the most important message we're trying to proclaim. Your kids are listening. Not just when you're speaking at club, but when you're speaking to the policeman that just pulled you over because you were speeding. They're listening to the way you treat your friends, the way you treat each other on your team. They're listening to what you say about your president. Be very careful. In this day and age, love should stand out more than ever. What if instead of joy, there's sadness and depression? What if instead of peace, there's stress and anxiety? Instead of patience, there's impatience. Instead of goodness, there's evil desires. Instead of kindness, there's meanness. Gentleness, there's harshness. Instead of faithfulness, there's unfaithfulness. And what if instead of self-control, our lives look out of control? Symptoms of spiritual emptiness. One of the ways you know the value of something is that if you lose it, what kind of effort will you spend trying to find it? If I'm walking down the street and I drop a penny, to be honest, I stop and think about it. The older I get, the more I stop and think, do I want to bend over and pick up that penny? If I drop a gold coin, I catch it before it hits the ground. The effort I exert to find something determines the value of it to me. If you've lost Jesus, if he seems absent, what's the effort you will put forward to find him? For them, there was no question. They were going to look. So they began looking first among their relatives. It makes sense, doesn't it? You'd go first to the people that knew him best. Partly because you'd feel a little bit more comfortable and safe to go, I don't know how to say this, but we lost Jesus. Don't, don't think bad of us. Have you seen him? I know you know him. Who do you know that knows Jesus best? Who do you think of and you go, there's no question in my mind, Jesus is in them and with them. If you're at a place in your life, if you're not there now, you probably will be one day. What would it mean to go to those people and go, hey, look, I think I've lost Jesus. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know you know him. I know he's with you and in you. Would you help me find him? Imagine the gift that would be to them. Who do you know that knows Jesus? Maybe you could say, would you pray for me? I want to be close to Jesus like you are, and I know that I'm not. They began looking among their relatives. And then when they didn't find him there, it says they went back. What's it mean for them to go back? First, they had to admit that they've lost him. They had to turn around. That's what repentance means, turning around and go against the flow. I have to admit, when we're traveling, I hate pulling off the road. 
getting gas or getting anything because all those people I've just passed now pass me. I should probably have been a race car driver. I don't like people passing me. But they had to turn around and, and walk past all the people they had gotten ahead of. And I'm sure every one of them or a lot of them would go, hey, where are you going? Home's this way. It's disruptive. It's embarrassing. They had to go, yeah, we've lost Jesus. I think he might be back that way. They turn around and go back. What do you do when you've lost something? You go back to where you remember it being last. So they go to Jerusalem. Last place they remembered being with Jesus, back to the city of David where the people of God are. Where's the place you think of where you've been closest to Jesus? How do you get back to that place if you've lost him? Place is important in the scriptures. They go back to the place they last had Jesus. How long did it take? Three days. How long is three days when you've lost your child? It's forever. In fact, Mary says, why have you done this to us? We've been anxiously searching for you. The word that's used in the original language, anxiously, means anguish. It means, another verse in Luke uses the same word. It means anguish like the souls in hell. If you've lost your child for three days, there's an anguish like nothing else. And there are times in our life when things happen. Sometimes it's because of us, and sometimes we had nothing to do with it. It just happened. And there's an anguish. There's a despair. There's a hurt. Maturity is not that your life is lived perfectly, but it's what you do when there's anguish and despair. Do you go to Jesus or do you go away from him? And then it says they found him in the temple. Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? If you can't find Jesus, he's always in his house. He's always in worship. I'm not sure what your relationship is with the local church. It needs to be better and deeper than it is. So does mine. The way you find Jesus regularly is you walk through the doors of a church. You enter with God's people and you worship. This is not your church. Young life cannot be your church. You want to find Jesus, he's always in his house. That means worship. That means silence. That means prayer. That means solitude. That's hard to do when it feels like he's distant. But it's where you will find him. Is Jesus missing from your journey? It's possible to be so excited about Jesus because you're part of Young Life. So excited about telling kids about Jesus because it's what we do in Young Life. And yet, you are missing him personally. It's secondhand faith to you. He's distant. He's absent. The gospel you proclaim is not the gospel you're experiencing. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Here's the great news. If we're distant from Jesus, he never moved. We have. And you have a groom who comes to find you. We just sang about it. He'll do whatever it takes to find you, to wake you up. Years ago, Michael was a little boy, and he would play hide-and-seek with us. The weird thing about the way Michael did it, he wouldn't tell us he was playing hide-and-seek. 
we'd be all together, and we'd look around, and suddenly Michael would be missing. we go, oh, hide and seek. So we go through the house. He was almost always in the same spot. You kind of go all the other places, and you go, okay, how about the closet? There's Michael. So we went, did the little game. Michael, where are you? Michael, how about the closet? And he's not there. Oh, new hiding place. We look at other places, and we look everywhere, and we cannot find him. So I'm getting a little concerned and thinking, okay, what if this isn't a game? Like, what if he's gone outside? What if someone's taken him? What if our son is lost? And panic begins to take over. So we're racing that. We go into the living room. No one ever spends any time in the living room. It's just a show place. So I go in there, and I look under the couch, and there's just this little flap. Like, I don't even think he can fit under there. And I pull up the flap and look, and there's Michael. He's not looking at me because he's asleep. He'd gone to hide without telling us. It must have taken too long, and so he fell asleep. He's under the couch asleep. I'm trying to figure out, how do I wake him and not scare him? You know, so I kind of nudge him. First thing he sees is my face. Maybe you didn't intend to, but he just drifted off, and you've kind of fallen asleep. You have a groom that misses his bride that comes to look for you, he pursues you. He'll do whatever it takes to nudge you. To, maybe this weekend you felt the nudge of Jesus. He's wanting to wake you up. He's wanting to say, I've missed you. Come back. Let you and I be close. Thank you for saying yes to young life. But God called you to young life not because of what he wants to do through you, but because of what he wants to do in you. Not because kids need Jesus, but because you do. Not because kids need to hear the gospel, but because you do. And I pray that as you do, as you go all over these states to tell kids about Jesus, it'll come from a place of freshness and realness and intimacy because you know you have a groom who loves you more than you can imagine. We thought about how to end this morning, and it didn't feel right to just end with me saying a prayer. It felt right that we would join the church universal this morning and worship together one more time. So the cash family is going to come out. We're going to worship together. Take a look at the face of your groom as we worship. The splendor of the king. trembles at his voice, yeah, trembles at his voice, I pray is our God, oh sing with me, how great is our God, oh we'll see how great, how great is our God. Well, age to age.
my soul, then sings my soul.